0: Luke chapter nine and verse twenty-eight. And it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James, and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. And behold there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias who appeared in glory, and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory, and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, and Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. While he thus spake, there came a cloud, and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. Amen. Turn with me now to uh, Mark chapter 9. So I'll just go back a few pages. And we'll examine with the Lord's gracious help this evening, verses 4 to 8. Let us take in verses 2 and 3 as well, but the preaching will be from verses 4, 5, 6, 7, yes, including 8. So from verse 2 of chapter 9 of Mark. And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were so afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And suddenly when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more save Jesus only with themselves. Amen. And may it please the Lord to bless the public reading of his uh, word to us this evening. Let us briefly call upon the Lord for that help that we need to hear the Word of God aright and to preach it by His grace. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank Thee for Thy Word. We thank Thee that we're brought again to this very special uh, moment in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, a unique uh, moment. Something of Christ's divine glory is revealed upon earth at that time and within uh, the sight of three of his disciples. Lord, help us, we pray, to understand what thou would say to us. Take thy word and apply it to us and bless it to us. Lord, that even if we uh, do not understand certain things that are said, that we would have a fresh glimpse of a glorified Christ that our hearts would be exalted that we would consider him and love him and fear him more and that our service would be pleasing unto him Lord grant unto me from above thy power thy grace thy spirit that unction to preach clearly to preach with power I pray Thee in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Lord's Day evening, we already took some time to consider... Something of Christ's uh, transfiguration, specifically verses 2 and, and 3 of, of Mark chapter 9. And then we saw something of the circumstances of his transfiguration. We saw that the period of time. Uh, two gospel accounts speak of after six days, and, and the one that we read, Luke this evening, speaks of around eight days. And we saw that with two different methods, both speaking of exactly the same uh, time, seven days or so after. His disciples we saw that he took three of these disciples, Peter, James and John were taken with him and we looked very briefly at the mountain, what mountain would it be, was it Mount Hermon, was it Mount Tabor, just to give us some some uh, context, context of course is always king when it comes to understanding the Scriptures. But secondly, and this was leading up to the the most important part of it in many ways, is the the incarnate Son of God transfigured. So after the circumstances of His transfiguration, then we think of the incarnate Son of God uh, transfigured, and we considered the moment of His transfiguration, and then the description of His transfiguration, and then the gospel application of that transfiguration. We will not go into those details, it is, the sermon is to be found on Sermon Audio. But let us examine further the details, therefore, that we didn't get to, which in verses 4 to 8, because there are details, therefore, of of those that appeared with him in glory, in that glory that was appeared uh, on the mountain as he was transfigured. And so we will, with the Lord's gracious help, continue from verse 4, And consider the further glories of Christ's transfiguration. Uh, That is the title, the further glories of Christ's uh, transfiguration. And we see then as we open up verse 4 of Mark chapter 9, we see the unexpected company at his transfiguration. Unexpected company, not an unexpected to the Lord, of course. Not unexpected uh, to the Father, but unexpected to the disciples, and maybe certainly to us, uh, as we see the Lord there he goes up the mountain, the mountain, he, he takes his disciples with him he 's transfigured that is amazing enough, but then suddenly there 's this extra company that appears, mark chapter nine and verse four, and there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus, so we see their appearance, these Uh, These two representatives of the Old Testament, we could say. Elias being the Greek form of Elijah. So Elijah and Moses. So together with the New Testament apostles... Uh, those three, we we see, and, and that you could say, would well, they represent the New Testament uh, uh, apostles and preachers and, and, and the books themselves? And and we here we have Moses and Elias. Well, Moses and Elias uh, are, are are well chosen, of course. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets, and together they represent. The whole of the New Testament. You say, well, that is a phrase that was used. Just the word, the law, it could represent all 39 books. But we know the expression, the law and the prophets again. But we also know the law and the prophets and the Psalms. Well, who represents the Psalms? Well, it is Christ, of course. Understand that from Colossians 3 and verse 16, the words of Christ, the word of Christ is the psalm. So if you need to have that identification, Christ is there to fulfill that for you. But here we have, and it's something very important, the law and uh, the prophets. And now together with the chief apostles, we could say, uh, they who, all three of them were all penmen. All three of these uh, wrote something of the Scriptures, And because they represent the Scriptures and they represent the New Testament uh, um, apostles, they also represent New Testament believers, as do Elijah and Moses represent the Old Testament uh, believers. So there's a great representation here. And as I mentioned last time, when we see the transfiguration, and we see well, we see Elijah and we see Moses, we see something of our of our future promised glorification in Jesus Christ. And these two were both glorified by Christ. Now, if you know your Bible, the, the Moses died and was buried, and so it is his soul that's in the glory with the Lord. But Elijah, he was taken by the burning chariot straight to heaven. So here he is, body and soul. And so we know that when we die, believers, that we die and, and our body rots in the grave, but the soul goes immediately, is changed into a glory, holiness, a glorious holiness at death, and, and goes to be immediately with the Lord. And that the Lord sustains us and loves us, and we have a full, even in our soul, we have a, a full life, a full life of, of fellowship and, 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 and living like we've never lived before. In the glory with the Lord. But we see with Elijah also is then a foretaste of our own resurrection. That God Himself uh, resurrects our body and body and soul sustains us wherever we are. So when the Lord says, as the Lord returns, and it says, and He will, this people will be taken up to be with the Lord. And, and imagine then that we're taken up to be in the sky, uh, well above the, maybe even well above the atmosphere. And looking way down, but the Lord is keeping us and holding us. There's no oxygen up there, but that's not a problem for the Lord. He sustains us and keeps us as he pours out the fire of judgment upon the earth to cleanse it from all the wickedness and the idolatry and all that is against him and, and as it were, uh, cleans the world for the new heaven and the new earth that is to be established. So in Christ's transfiguration then, and with Moses and Elijah, we see something of uh, this glorification. These two have been glorified, Moses and Elijah, and they appear in the glory of Christ himself. It is Christ's glory that they have. They appear, as it says, literally in in his glory. But the apostles are not yet glorified. They are, they are simply men a, a, as we are. But what we do have here that represents then the whole of the Scriptures and the whole of the church is Christ himself, Christ Jesus there in the middle, the chief cornerstone, the, the, the author and the contents of the entire book of the Scriptures, and even in himself Christ represents all, both testaments, all of God's uh, Word. It's interesting then we consider then that it is Christ that gave his law to Moses on the mount. And here we have Moses appearing and and Christ's uh, prophetic word and prophetic power given to Elijah through his spirit. So both the law and the prophets brimming with Christ, uh, pointing to Christ, empowered by Christ, informed by Christ... And then what does Christ do when he comes to earth? He fulfills them both. He fulfills the law to the letter. There is not one law that he has broken even in desire, in thought, because Christ is the Holy Lamb of God, pure, pure. And he fulfills the prophecies. He fulfills the prophecy. So there we have Christ transfigured. We can imagine, it's not made clear, we can imagine Elijah on one side and Moses on the other, and that's the way maybe we would picture it. But whatever it is, we have Christ, the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets, and here He is on earth as He promised through His prophets, as He kept His word through the prophets, and as He keeps the law for His people. So we see their appearance there, but there is something also mentioned. And we read from Luke, for the express reason, that we have a little bit more information about their conversation. So we have the appearance of these two. I think there is much more that could be said, but we will limit it. And now we have their conversation. All we know in, Mo- in, uh, in verse 4 of Mark 9, and they were talking with Jesus, the same with Matthew. But in, in Luke, there is something added We have a little portion um, of the conversation, or at least something of the theme of what they were talking of. Luke 9 and verse 31, it is. It says, Who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. And notice, as I mentioned last week, and I just want to bring that to us again. Notice the intimate and friendly way that these two are speaking with the Lord. It doesn't even say that they are on their knees before him. It would be right for them to be on their knees before him. But they seem appear, from what we can understand from the language, is that they are standing with Christ. Very similar to the way that Abraham stood with the Lord and the two angels as they spoke. In a very familiar, very friendly, unassuming way. Yes, he is the Lord of glory. And yet we understand from the scriptures, as the Lord himself says, that he is meek of heart. Yet he is the glorious Lord of hosts. He has armies and armies of angels, and he will save a a, a multitude of people. Those all included in the armies over whom Christ has the glory, and yet see that that friendly and intimate way that they would speak to their Lord, it says so much, not about them, but about the Lord Jesus. You could, may imagine a, a tyrant of a king who would demand that people would come into the th- his throne room uh, on their face and crawling before him or bowing or, or, and, and then coming down onto the steps, as it were, and, and just, and just, and just tre- um, trembling before him and waiting for him to do whatever he would do because he's a tyrant and he's not to be trusted. He could, his mood swings would determine their life and their death. But this is not Christ. This is not the king who is transfigured before us in glory. He speaks to these creatures whom he both created. This Moses and this Elijah, whom he created and by his grace saved and drew into service of himself. And he speaks to them as friends. And then what do they speak of? Gospel matters. You see how Moses might say, well, you know, I've done my bit and and now I'm going into the glory of forget about all this this gospel thing. Not in the slightest. Both Moses and Elijah and Christ are talking of the gospel, talking of this work of salvation, talking about what Christ is going to do. Here is Christ fulfilling both the law and the prophets and here he is actually doing it. And what are they speaking of? The gospel. And you might say to yourself, how do I understand that they're speaking of the gospel? Well, when we read this, on first reading you might conclude that Moses and Elijah are actually speaking of Christ's future death on this cross. His decease is, 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 is going into death and, well, you're right. I'm not going to contradict that. That is absolutely true. But when you look at the underlying Greek word that's used for decease, it is a Greek word that you know. We know more Greek than we think. This is the Greek word exodus. They were speaking of his exodus. And that word means a departure, a going out. So in this way it is speaking of his death, of of his departing this life by the death on the cross. Yes, that's true because both the law and the prophets speak of the necessity of a sacrifice. That's the law. And then they speak of the necessity of the suffering of Jehovah's servant to save his people. That's the prophets, if I may sum it up. But it is by the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross that he would be carrying out a greater gospel exodus than Moses ever did. The three million or so that we may estimate from the numbers that we have in the Scriptures, including those that came out of Egypt... But there is a multitude that no man can number. And he will lead a whole people out of the power of sin and out of the power of Satan and into what? What is he representing here? Communion with God, peace with God, the glory of God, the greater exodus that Christ did, nailed to the wood. To bring a people, a bride, to show his bride to the Father, as all things are in their time consummated in the consummation of redemption. So we see something then in the unexpected company at his transfiguration. Secondly then, the glorifying words of Christ's Father. The glorifying words of Christ's uh, Father. And again, you know your Scriptures, there is one time prior to this that the, that the Father's words were audibly presented upon earth. And when was that? That was at the baptism of Christ. At His baptism, and now for the second time at His transfiguration. And a similar message was, was given. At least it was a declaration that this is my beloved Son. Well, what is so special about then the baptism and about the transfiguration? When we did look at uh, Mark chapter 1, we, we went into some detail. That's a while ago now. But very briefly, what is baptism? Why did... not what is baptism, sorry, but why was Christ baptized? What has Christ to do with baptism? Actually, bap- baptism is, uh, is something for God's people. It's not, it's not for the Lord himself. Well... It is for the Lord, because at baptism, Christ identifies himself or identified himself with His people. This is part of his identification. He who is pure and holy and righteous in all ways, entered into those waters of baptism, those baptismal waters that represent what, the washing away of sin, the sin that he did not have, for that's true. But one day he would. He would bear the sin. He would have that sin put upon him, upon his body, and then that body nailed to the cross. I say, well, it wasn't his sin, but he took the sin and he took the guilt for sin. And the Father so identified Christ with his people that when Christ died for the sins of his people, the sins of his people were paid for completely and forever. but it is because of that blessed union with his people that he underwent that baptism and that he had himself baptized as if he was a sinful man as if he was believer as if he was you as if he was you and it's so important that he did so because the waters of baptism point to Christ it's only through him that the symbol of the water has any true spiritual meaning or effect Because the waters of baptism, it's not about the water, it's about the blood of Jesus. The blood that washes us from all sin. And so the audible appearance of the Father's voice at His baptism was what? Well, it was a confirmation of Christ's unity with His people. Not just the voice, but the baptism itself. This is my Son, this is my Son whom I have sent And given to be the Redeemer of His people. But now at the Transfiguration, what do we have? We have something different. We're now enabled to see that this is the confirmation of Christ's unity with the Father. Now, this is my Son. This is my only begotten. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And in some ways there's also a change in state in the sense we have the humbling baptism and we have something of the exaltation to be seen yet in the transfiguration. So that is then the difference that we may see as we, as we consider the glorifying words of Christ's Father. But let's get into the detail now and consider first these, the personal identification that we have. The personal identification... And so we've looked at Luke, but now I'd, I'd like to jump again to Matthew. Because the fullest account of the Father's words to the apostles about his Son is given in Matthew 17 and verse 5. It is only one little extra word, but I think it's the fuller, fuller record. It says, While he yet speak, spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. Could make a comment about the cloud that the cloud is now a white, shining cloud. It's not a dark cloud, a dark cloud to protect to the people at the bottom of Sinai from the glory of God, which was, which was which, and they were protected from it, lest that glory go out and, and destroy their wicked sinfulness. But here we have a brighter, a bright light, a bright cloud, a white cloud. which said, This is my beloved Son, the voice, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. There are three matters, therefore, spoken of by the Father in the hearing and for the apostles, and through the apostles for us, that we are to hear and to understand. And, and two of them we will examine under this heading of personal identification. And, that's the, and that is then, the, the, the first of those two is the beloved sonship that he says. He says, this is my beloved son. A- and these are the words of a proud father, proud in the purest and most holy sense, of course. The father reveals that this Jesus of Nazareth, this, this carpenter's son and this carpenter, this man who has been uh, preaching the gospel, is not just some holy prophet. He's not Elijah. He's not Moses. He's my Son, the Son of God. And as the Father is divine, so is the Son. And as the Father is eternal, so is the Son, although He be, as it were, covered in a a body of flesh. And yet within Him, as we're seeing, as we considered last week, as the divinity and the glory of Christ was uh, was shining through the flesh and through the clothing. And as the Father is the Creator, so is the Son. Something that's, it's something that's very difficult when you speak to those in cults uh, to make very clear to them the divinity of Christ in so many ways. And, but the most simplest is that if I have a child and I'm human, my child is human. And when the eternal and infinite God declares that He has an only begotten Son, that that Son is also God... And of course there are many more uh, verses that would help us to understand that he receives worship, that he is called Jehovah, that that he has created all things, that he sustains all things by the word of his power. There are so many things that speak of the divinity of Christ, but just the Father saying, this is my Son, full stop. that's, That's sufficient. He's not saying that this is my son that I've I've adopted or taken in, that I call him my son. He's not speaking of uh, Moses and Elijah are also his sons by adoption, by salvation. But he says nothing of them. He gives all the honor and the glory to his own son. So he is his son. And he says... Next to saying that He is His Son, that He is His own begotten Son, He also reveals His love for His Son. That He loves His Son. That, the, that this, this Son whom He is that he's now uh, shining with glory in, in front of Him or below Him as he's, he's represented in that white cloud is the object of His eternal affections. Such a perfect and glorious, and happy, and pure relationship, we, we, we can barely understand. But this is an eternally so relationship. It's eternally brimming with love, and joy, and acceptance, and happiness, and, and all these things that we may glimpse of every now and again in a human relationship. But it's certainly not eternal. And it's certainly not Pure. Certainly not as pure as we're considering a holy God, the Holy Father and the Holy Son together. You know, the word that's used for the love expressed from the Father to the Son is that unconditional divine love that is so often used in the Scriptures, that agape love, that he loves his Son unconditionally. And it's so therefore, it's not based upon Christ's works or Christ's abilities. It's based upon his relationship with Christ. He loves him because he loves him. And, and of course, it's, it's not the case that, the, that Christ could do anything to lose that love, but you can't lose unconditional love. Conditional love you can, and no doubt we all know that. We've all experienced that in some way. That somebody has that you have disappointed somebody, or maybe someone's disappointed you, and your affections have grown cold. You've turned away from them because your love for them was conditional. But it's not the love that the Lord would. Ha- it's not the love that, that the Lord has. Nor is it the love that the Lord commands us to have. He wants that unconditional love. So it's based upon that relationship uh, that he has with Christ. And the Heavenly Father is not ashamed to reveal to the world, uh, to to these three apostles, he's not ashamed to say that he, he, he truly loves his Son, the Son that he has sent to redeem a beloved people. But consider that love then. He loves him so much, he has declared it twice upon earth, and no doubt the son knows uh, constantly the father's love to him and if, the lo- if if the father loves the son so much and yet then we understand that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life what does that say Well, we're plumbing the depths now. It says this: that the Father's love and the Son's love to the people that they have chosen from all eternity is so great that they're both happy; they're both pleased to undergo or at least the Lord as a human, to undergo great suffering and humiliation because the love for his people is so great. Would you not, if you're not tonight one of the people of God, would you not be astounded to want to enter into the family of God and enter into the kingdom of Christ and be part of this people? Not because of the people, but because of the redeemer of that people. Because the gospel is all about love. It is premised upon God's hate for sin, but he deals with it, how? By love. And that's why the Lord draws. We all have our own, those of us saved have our own conversion stories, and we can talk about how the Lord has dealt with us and and drawn us, and we may may have fought against it or or ignored it, and yet when we're saved, the Lord has drawn us with cords of what? Love drawn us with cords of love, and yet we hated him, but his love is so greater than our hate. Thanks be to God. Praise the Lord. And so therefore he sent his Son, whom he loves with an eternal love, to die upon that cross. That the work of redemption that would be begun in the hearts of those he saves would then cause us or it would kindle within us a love towards him. Now, we must be honest how weak and feeble is the flame of our love. But it will grow stronger, and it will become an eternal fire within us as we live and bask and breathe and thrive in the glory of Jesus Christ, enabled to give that love back again here so little, so confused, so mixed with sin. But then, and so, but the Lord is beginning that. The Lord is beginning that. And of course, he does that. We must not forget the work of the Holy Ghost, that the Holy Ghost that applies that, who enters in, who dwells into the sinner and, and, and makes that sinner willing in the day of gospel power applied to the sinner. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is here. Also, uh, having filled Christ, maybe we could say that, that the Holy Ghost is, is, is part of that glory. But when we, when we consider then the love of the Father, that unconditional, that strong and eternal love, can you say the same thing? Can you say, you can't say in the same way, but can you say that the beloved of the Father is my beloved? Again, a little tiny flame, it doesn't have to be a roaring fire, but do you love the Father's beloved? And do you love him unconditionally? So, say, why do I need to love Christ unconditionally? Why do I need to love God unconditionally? Well, because there are circumstances in life, there are crosses that can be laid upon our back by the Lord Jesus Christ that we find difficult. But do we love him in any case? In spite of those crosses, do you still love him? And that would be the unconditional love that we are to have, even in the circumstances, even with the sickness, even with the old age. Those difficult things that the Lord, even the Lord, uses. We know all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them who are the called according to his purpose. We, we understand that and we often experience that. And then the Lord says, as it were, love me still. There's a true and glorious, faithful love, but see the Father's love for the Son—a little bit revealed even tonight. So the beloved Sonship, but secondly, the begetter's satisfaction. I'm sorry for these <laughs> phrases. The begetter's satisfaction, because He begets the Son. He ever begets the Son. I'm not want to get into the Trinity tonight, but the Father has has ever and does ever beget the Son. He is. The Father is ever the begetter. The Son is ever the begotten. And consider His satisfaction when we read those words, in whom I am well pleased. Can I say that this shows us something of the extent of the Son's love back to the Father. The Father loves the Son, and the Son pleases the Father. And how does Christ please the Father? Well, we may be hinted at it But he pleases the Father by doing that which he and the Father have agreed to. An agreement is maybe far too light. He has covenanted to do. He's humbled himself to fulfill what we call the covenant of redemption. And this is is a, a, a sealed covenant, as it were, regarding the redemption of God's people. Let me just read a little description of what this is. In the covenant of redemption... Christ undertook to atone for the sins of his people by bearing the necessary punishment and to meet the demands of the law for them. And by taking the place of delinquent man, he became, Christ, the last Adam, and is as such the head of the covenant, the representative of all those whom the Father has given him. With thanks to Mr. Berkoff. For his description. In other words, from all eternity, the Father had determined with the Son that the Son would become the Redeemer and he would take the place of his people, that he would suffer and die for that people. And it pleases the Father. Because here we have now in time, we have geographically in a place that this is being fulfilled. Of course, Christ's Spirit through the prophets had been speaking of this. Moses' law had been determining that there should be a sacrifice and it had to be a, 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 a sacrifice without spot or blemish. It had to be holy and even the priesthood and all that was in the tabernacle and then later the temple service, all pointing to the work of redemption. And in doing this, in humbling himself and becoming a man, in setting out that gospel ministry and then becoming the Lamb of God upon the cross, and all that is involved in that, not only does the Lord save a people from their sins, but He gives God all the glory. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. They haven't just planned salvation. Christ is now performing salvation. Even in that holy and sinless life that He's living now, even on the mount fulfilling the law every single sinless day, becoming the holy and sinless and spotless Lamb of God ready to be nailed to that cross. And that is Christ's so strong desire that He would glorify the Father, not to please the Father to buy His love because the love streams forth from the Father eternally and fully and infinitely and his father's and his love towards the Father is that way. But you see how it's expressed. Same what the Lord says to us, if you love me, keep my commandments. Not to buy our, not to buy Christ's love, but to prove that we have some love towards him. You see the perfections of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he would give all the glory. To his father. John 17 and verses 1 to 5, we have the beginning of the high priestly prayer, and that's how he begins that prayer. It's just giving the, the, his father all the glory. He says, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. There's only reason why he wants to be glorified, that he can, he can give all the glory back to his father. And it's in verse 1. And verse 3, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am. Well pleased. And all of that covenant, all of that glorious gospel plan, all of the redemption of all of his people will be and is satisfied and fulfilled. And so when we consider this, and we consider this Christ, we consider what the the words that the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to us, even in our hearing or as we read the scriptures, then we may have that confidence. We may have that confidence that the Father says that he is pleasing. He is the beloved. Lay hold on him. And you too will know the love of God and the satisfaction of Jesus Christ. That you too can say, this is the Son. He is my beloved in whom I am so well pleased. The Father is pleased with his Son. He's pleased even with the sacrifice of his Son. And therefore, the only way to the Father is through the Son. Whosoever would come to the Father, whosoever would come to God and have peace with God must come through his Son and have the forgiveness of sins that his Son has provided and paid for, to have that peace with his Father and with our God, that you would then have Christ's Father as your own Father by adoption. So we've seen the personal identification. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And then the personal exhortation from the Father to you, to me, to the three apostles. He says, hear ye him. Hear ye him. In Mark it says, hear him. It's the same in the Greek, just Matthew's a little bit grammatically fuller. It's a plural command. Hear ye him. Ye all. All that are hearing the voice of God speaking. Hear him. And it, it, this word to hear is not a, is not a simple word um, to listen. Uh, observe with the ears. The, the, this word that we have uh, in the Greek is, is a word uh, hear and obey. It's, it's almost like one word. Hear and obey. Hear and do. And that's what the Father desires of all mankind, that they would hear his Son. And most especially those that follow Christ, he would say, hear ye Him, listen to Him and obey Him. Well, you might say to yourself, well, if the Father says, hear ye Him, how how do I hear Christ's words? Do I have to get one of those Bibles with, with the red letters in the New Testament and just read those red letters? Well, of course not. Not at all. But the Father is referring to all the Scriptures. They all testify of Christ. As Christ says, search the Scriptures, he says. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The Scriptures, all the Scriptures. And of course, not just reading them, because that would be like listening and not doing. So as we read them, we are to apply them. All of them. All of the Scriptures. And essentially this, when the Lord says, hear him, he's saying, read him. Read him. Study him. Obey him. Apply him. Let's not separate the word of God from the living word of God too much. One is a a revelation or an expression of the other. But the Father is essentially teaching us sola scriptura. We may understand that as the Scriptures alone. But essentially, Scriptures alone mean Christ alone. It's the teaching of Christ. It's the teaching of Christ's prophets. It's the teaching of Christ's apostles. It's the teaching of those who speak by the Spirit of Christ and have authored these 66 books of divine revelation. Christ does not speak to his church in any other way than through the Scriptures of the Old and the New Testament. You do not have to listen to anything or anyone uh, that is not uh, regarding spiritual matters and moral matters. You don't have to listen to anything or anyone uh, outside of the Scriptures. I mean, of course, there are commentators to help us understand the Scriptures. There are preachers that open up the Scriptures. But they're really to help us to understand what the Scriptures say and only the Scriptures and certainly not when anything's contrary to the Scriptures. I mean, that's, that's a, that should be a given. And we are to be only reliant upon the Word of God to teach us. Hear ye Him. And therefore you are not to fear, as the Old Testament teaches, the man or the woman that would add to or take away from the Scriptures, who would come with new revelation, but not to fear them. And we're also to do away with any doctrine that's not Biblical. Anything that we, that, that we hold on to, but it's not in the Bible, then let it go, because you do not need it. You do not I need to add to Christ. I think I, know, I think, I know Christ is perfect enough. He doesn't need anything from, from sinful men and women to add to Him. He's sufficient in His 66 books of Revelation. But also to do away with hobby horses, and preachers need to remember this as well, to do away with hobby horses that don't reflect the priority of the Scriptures. There may be one particular little doctrine that's revealed in one particular uh, book, and that has its own interest and that has its own context, and of course it's not unimportant because it's the Word of God. But then we have uh, 65 other books and so many chapters of all these other doctrines, the full counsel, all the counsel of God that is to be preached and taught upon. And we see again and again and again in the Old Testament, turn from your sin, turn from your sin. Old Testament language, New Testament, that language is repent, repent, repent. Now that is the priority of God. In the Old Testament and the New Testament gospel, that people would turn from their sin and believe the promises of God. And we're to do away with every tradition that gets in the way, whether it's a Baptist tradition, a Presbyterian tradition, Anglican, Wesleyan Methodist, whatever it is, anything that is not in the Scriptures and, and and often is contrary to the Scriptures, we need to get away with. The things, anything that we believe or say or hold dear, that is contrary to the Scriptures, lest... Our tradition, whether it's a personal, a family, or a denominational one, makes the word of non-effect. That's true biblical Christianity, to be radically sola scriptura. So we see, therefore, that the Reformers didn't come up with it. It's the Father in heaven that declares it. We must have Christ alone, and we must have Christ's word alone. That we know that we're preaching the true gospel that we know who, with the God that we have to deal with, uh, that, we know, that we understand who Jesus is and how we're to live that's pleasing to Him, how we're to do church that's pleasing to Him, how to live our, our lives as pleasing Him when we have it in the Scriptures. And this is where so many churches go awry and they go astray. As I recently heard, a, a half-gospel, maybe I'm being too kind, a false-gospel, talking about uh, having a, a wonderful life and, and all you need is Jesus Christ and, and, and just come and have a little prayer and Jesus will come into your heart and, and you'll be really happy and everything. And no mention of sin. No mention of your need to flee to Jesus Christ. And it is true there is much love and there's much goodness to be found in Christ. But why would a sinner go to him to get rid of their sin? And to have peace with God, nothing of the wrath of God was mentioned. And that's because people think they're cleverer, or more holy, or more spiritual than the Word of God. I heard one person many years ago, a person who preached from the pulpit, saying, I will never speak of hell. Well, this person thinks that they're more spiritual than Jesus Christ himself, who constantly, not constantly, but regularly warned people about the hellfire that he had created. And the lake of fire, which is an expression of his wrath against sin and unrepentant sinners. And if anyone knew about hell, it was Christ, the creator thereof. But these are the people. Think, oh, well, we have to adjust the word. We have to edit the word to make it more appealing to sinners. So that in the end, you have a church full of goats who are learning to dance and spring about. And yet none of them are the sheep of Christ's flock. Sola Scriptura, hear ye him. And that's for all of us. That's for every single one of us as believers to see what is it that I hold on to that's not in the Scriptures? What have I given too much priority to that is not the priority of the Scriptures? That I would be a Sola Scriptura, an absolute, only the Word of Christ Christian. Because then we will be fruitful. The church at Berea was fruitful because the word of God went purely forth and it was accepted, it was received, and it was acted upon. The Thessalonica had the same word, but they did not receive it. So we've seen the unexpected company at his transfiguration, the the glorifying words of Christ's Father, and thirdly and finally, the message of the transfiguration. Although we've touched upon a number of things There are many messages we could say, but as we we round off uh, this portion of Scripture, uh, let us see, firstly, the mercies of Christ. The mercies of Christ. We see that in verse 5 of chapter 9 of Mark. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. The mercies of Christ. We understand, uh, not only from Mark, but also from Luke and Matthew, uh, that the the disciples were groggy with sleep. They couldn't stay awake. They couldn't couldn't do their part, shall we say, in, in, in this season of prayer that the Lord had taken them up the mount to do. They were sleepy, their eyes were heavy, they were were clearly at this moment even seeing something of the transfiguration, groggy and confused and fearful. What's going on? They sort of wake up and then they see this, there's there's no context. It's not as though they they suddenly saw the Lord transfiguring slowly and then then, this is almost as if they opened their eyes and and, and it's all laid out before them. And, And they're fearful, they don't understand, the Lord had clearly not told them. He wants them to see something and experience something firsthand. And so they haven't stayed awake to pray. And now they're still groggy as as all of this is happening. And they're fearful as well. And then even we see Peter, he opens his mouth uh, to suggest something that's clearly unnecessary. He says, you know, we will build three tents, three tabernacles, so that they could stay on the mountain overnight. But he says this. And I think it's Luke that says it, as Moses and Elijah are departing. As they're departing, he said, well, we can build a tent as if he's trying to call them back. Or It doesn't make sense. It was, it was clearly unnecessary. But notice that Peter did not receive any rebuke from the Father or from the Son. He wasn't told that was foolish to say that. What do you think you're playing at? Who asked you? And there's no rebuke, there's no comment. Why? Well, he was foolish. He he was, in a way, wrong. But the reason why he received no rebuke and no admonishment is because the Father and his Son are rich in mercy and compassion. They are rich in long-suffering. They did not mock or despise Peter. They silently passed over his mistake. And none of the three gospel accounts is there, is there anything goes out against Peter. There are times when the Lord does rebuke Peter, but not here. Peter's fearful. Peter thinks he's trying to do the right thing. And that's a great lesson. When something happens to us, when something happens in life and we can easily react in a in a judgmental and a and a negative way is well we should take the example of the Lord and his father. Just let it pass. Say nothing. Be gracious. Don't even mention it to others. But we do see that these disciples, they're fear filled. When the Lord transfigures before them, and then they hear the voice of the Father, and they become even more fearful, as we read in one of those three accounts. as soon as they hear the the, the, the voice of the Father, they, they fall upon their faces, and they are filled with even more fear and Then what happens next is is very useful it 's very helpful to us when we understand this, and again, we have to go to matthew 's account. And verse seven of chapter seventeen of Matthew. So we we see, Moses and Elijah were departing anyway, and then uh, uh, the voice of the Father. They fall flat. Let's not get them. I might get from the details mixed up, but in any case, we have them fear-filled and on the ground. You can imagine them trembling, not knowing what's going on, fearful, fearful, full of fear. And it says in Matthew 17 and verse 7, And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. So Christ approaches them. And again, he does not reproach them for their fear or the lack of being able to stay awake and to pray along with them or their lack of boldness. But he physically comes and touches them. He makes that contact with them. And he comforts them with those words, Arise and be not afraid. Sweet, comforting words from the Saviour to his fearful companions. But they needed not to be afraid anyway, because Christ was with them. And they needed not to be afraid because of the voice of of the Father, because Christ represented them to the Father. When they had Christ and they were with Christ... There was no need for them to be fearful. And so he told them that. Arise, get up, there's no need to be on the floor, and be not afraid. There's no need to be afraid when we have Christ, and humanly we can be afraid. We know that Paul the Apostle, even when he was going through, uh, through difficulties, shipwrecks and, 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 and attacks and assaults and, and imprisonment, he talks about himself being afraid. He's not some super saint that, you know, none of us can go near. And yet still to Paul, the apostle, and to us also, and yet the Lord will still say, be not afraid. And again, the question is why? Well, because God is with you. The Lord is nigh. The Lord is nigh unto all those that love him and all those that call upon him. And finally... As we've considered the mercies of Christ, let's just very briefly consider this, the glorious synod of the Church of Christ, because we see here, we've talked about the Scriptures, we've talked about Christ and He fulfills the Scriptures, we've talked about the representation of the Old and the New Testament believer uh, by these five men, but we also see a representation of the future eternal glorious Church. In all of what we see there, the entire Church of Christ triumphant in glory. So we've seen the triune God is there, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And again, where did you see the Holy Ghost? Well, the Holy Ghost is in Christ. Christ had the Spirit of God without measure, without any limitation, in and with the humanity of Jesus Christ. Of course, the Son is clearly there and the Father is clearly there. We have the Old Testament believers, we have the New Testament believers. But most especially we have the incarnate Son of God who was standing uh, on the mount, glorified, brimming with divine glory, and, we, and then we consider who He is for us and who He is for the church. He is the mediator between God and man, and we just hinted at that, there's no need to be afraid. We have Christ, and when we have Christ who is the mediator between God and yourself, He has taken away all wrath and he has brought peace between you and God. There is no need indeed, believer, to be afraid. He is the redeemer of his people. He is the prophet of God and he is the head of the church. And so when we consider this, this, this picture here of the, of the Father speaking and the Son filled with the Spirit without measure, we see Moses, we see Elijah, and we see uh, Peter, James, and John. Essentially, we're seeing something of the whole church saved by and sustained by the eternal Son of God, the beloved Son of God, the glorious Redeemer. And what do we then understand? And something that will be happening in the future And a glorious future is that sweet, loving fellowship that will exist. New Testament believer, Old Testament believer, Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ with the Father, filled with the Spirit. That sweet, loving, eternal uh, fellowship that we will have and the true church also united together in perfect love and fellowship. No more division, no more schism, Everyone's theology set straight by Christ. And then we'll know the truth and we'll live with the truth and we will we will live with him forever. And, 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 and Christians who even now are, have carnal drives will be fully spiritual and holy. The old man of the flesh, a distant memory. If we would even think on him. No more sin, no more corruption, no more death. And so we close when we consider this. Maybe the words of Paul when he speaks of this. So, when the corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immort- immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory. And we could continue with that quote, but that's what we have here. And so, the question that must be made to you all is this Will you be living, and will you be thriving, and will you be rejoicing in Christ's glory forever? Is that your destination? Is that where you will be? But this glorious future will only be yours when Christ is yours and you are Christ's. So understand that, believer, that this will be yours because you are Christ's and Christ is yours and Christ is yours. But for the sinner, for you to enter into Christ's glory You must turn away from all of that which is offensive to God, and that is your sin. You must turn away from that. We use that word confession and repentance. Confessing your sin before God. How do you enter Christ? How do you have your sins forgiven? Well, get on your knees and you pray to the Lord. And you confess that you are a sinner, that that you've sinned against Him, and that you're repenting of that sin. And you're seeking His forgiveness. And that forgiveness can only be yours because of the sacrifice of Christ. So it must not be a Christless prayer. It must be a Christ-filled prayer. And therefore you must believe in Christ. You must follow hard after Christ. Because if you do die in your sin, you will die in your guilt. And you will die as an enemy of God. And God knows this. And that's why he sends preachers to preach the gospel. You wouldn't die in your sin, and you wouldn't die in wrath. And guilty sinners will not enter into the glory of Christ. But there will be an eternity for you, but it will be a dying eternity, a burning eternity, a suffering in Christ's wrath eternity. And so then consider Christ. We've seen something of Christ and something of His glory and make friends with God through Christ on this side of eternity. For what you do with Christ now determines, will you be in the shining glory of Christ or will you be in the dark fires of the lake of fire because of your own sin? And it's your own fault. Your sin is your fault and your rejection of the gospel is your fault. You cannot blame, you cannot blame the Lord. My hands are washed and are clean of your sin and guilt because you've heard the gospel. And so young man, young woman, old man, old woman, whatever, you must come to the Lord Jesus and be saved. Amen. Let us briefly pray. Lord, we thank Thee that we've seen something more of the glories of Christ, the head of the church, saving a whole people and still gathering a people. Into himself. We do pray for thy blessing and an eternal blessing to be upon the going forth of the gospel command and call. Even this evening, we plead with thee for the convicting work of the Holy Ghost to work upon the consciences of those that have heard something of the gospel warnings and threats. We pray for that work of the Holy Ghost uh, to change and renew the will of those who are in their sin and may be convicted thereof, but have a desire to know something of this glorious Christ. Lord, we do pray for thee to have mercy upon their souls. Bless that word to us. And may we have a higher thoughts of Christ, and glorious thoughts of him. And may we ser- serve him. May we hear him. And forgive our sins in this regard, Lord that we've ridden hobby horses to the detriment of the truth of the Scriptures. Make us truly pure, sola scriptura Christians, each and every one, that Christ will receive all the glory. The Father, that Christ will give thee all the glory. For we pray in the name of thy Son. Amen.